Amen. Well, I want you to open with me to Joshua chapter 15, or actually Joshua 14 this morning. In just a moment, we'll talk about that. But I want to begin, while you're doing that, with just a brief exercise this morning. I want you to think about uh, someone that you greatly admire. Now I want you to think about what is it that you admire most about that person. It's probably going to fall into one of these three categories, either their attitude or their skill set, their abilities, or their looks. One of those three areas, typically. Uh, So I wonder, what is it that you admire most about that person? I would guess that for most of us, the category that is number one that we uh, appreciate about somebody the most is their attitude. Wouldn't you agree that attitude far outweighs somebody's abilities? It far outweighs somebody's looks? That attitude spells it all in someone's life, doesn't it? It's interesting how attitude can make someone look very different than your first appearance to them, right? (laughs) It's true. Attitude can make their skill set seem not so important when you realize they have a tremendous attitude. In my office, I have a, a quote by beloved pastor, respected Charles Swindoll, who's been the, who wrote this quote many years ago. It's been in my office for some time, but every once in a while I reflect on this quote because I need this reminder, and I think you need this reminder this morning as well. He writes, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It is more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than success, than what other people think, say, or do. It is more important than appearances, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, or a home, and the remarkable thing is, we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past, nor can we change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We also cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I'm convinced that life is 10% of what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. And so it is with you. We have charge of our attitudes. Would you agree with that? Well said. Today, as we come to the close of the final day of 2023, and we prepare to turn the page in the next chapter of a brand new year, 2024, We are met with the uncertainties of tomorrow, the challenges, as well as opportunities to trust our great God and Savior more and more in the days to come. The way I see it, our greatest need for the days to come is to trust the author and the finisher of our lives, our faith to learn to love and to trust and obey all the more the one who purchased our forgiveness and secured our eternity. To determine that I'm going to follow with all my heart the one who said I will never leave you nor forsake you. To be strong in his assurance that says do not be afraid. This morning I want us to Look at a question that I think is a life-altering question, depending on how you answer it, and it's up to you. But it's simply this. Uh, Do you have an attitude of faith? So what does an attitude of faith look like? Well, the Bible describes it as a mindset, uh, an outlook that we choose regardless of what we're going through. The Apostle Paul spoke of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13, calling it a spirit of faith. As he was facing death, as he was facing difficult circumstances, he chose to look at his life not through the lens of his circumstances, but through the lens of God's promises, God's assurance in his life. That's a biblical attitude. 
In other words, a biblical attitude says this, faith is not about what happens to me, but rather what happens in me that really matters. And I agree with that. Uh, For years now, researchers have proven that our attitude, our health, our mind, our body are uh, intricately woven together. They're snugly woven together. In a study conducted years ago at the University of Chicago, they analyzed the effect of over 200 telecommunication executives of their attitude and their health after their companies began to downsize. The health of the executives who saw the changes of downsizing as an opportunity for growth fared much better than those who saw it as a threat. Fewer than one-third of those executives had any kind of difficulties, health difficulties or so on, either during that downsizing or thereafter. But the executives who saw this change, this downsizing, as a threat to them personally, there was more than a 90% likelihood they would become severely ill. I'm convinced that life is not about what happens to you, but life is about what happens in you that is most important for us to understand. Well, turn with me to Joshua chapter 14, as I mentioned earlier. Joshua is the sixth book of the Old Testament. It's a wonderful book. In fact, if you were to compare it to the New Testament, Joshua is to the Old Testament, what Ephesians is to the New Testament. It's talking about the victory of the believer. And so Joshua is the book that we see the people of God for the first time realizing the promised land that God had told Abraham more than 400 years before that you will have the promised land flowing with milk and honey. And so we see Joshua is the realization of that promise that God had given the nation of Israel. It's broken into two basic parts. The first part of Joshua is about the conquering of the land, chapters 5 through chapters 12. And then from chapters 13 through chapter 21 is really about the dividing of the land. And so we see in Joshua that this one little nation called Israel conquers seven nations over a period of seven years. 31 kings, he lists in chapter 13 that God destroys all these people and gives them the promised land. But there's one figure in Joshua that stands out to me that I think we need to talk about today. A few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Danny and I were talking about the men's group going through the book of Joshua, and we talked about this character named Caleb. The more I thought about Caleb, I thought, you know, Caleb is the person we need to talk about today. Because I think he exemplifies a a faith that we need as we look at the year in front of us, at the uncertainties, the challenges, and the opportunities of the tomorrows in which we can trust Christ all the more. As we look at Joshua chapter 14, we're introduced to Caleb. He is no longer a, a spry, youthful, 40 years of age as he once was, all the way back in Numbers chapter 13 when he was one of the spies who came into the promised land to investigate it. Now he is 85 years old. <laughs> keep that in mind. If you feel old this morning, I want you to keep that in mind as we walk through this passage. In Joshua chapter 14, verses uh, 6 through 15, And also chapter 15, 16 through 17, we see a snapshot of Caleb's faith that I want us to embrace today personally for ourselves. Joshua says that Caleb comes to Joshua, the leader of Israel, to Gilgal, which is the very place that they had first crossed the river of Jordan and they set up camp. And now in chapter 14 is not the conquering of the land, but the dividing of the land. And we find that, that Caleb is, in fact, the leader of the tribe of Judah. And so he comes as a delegate for the tribe of Judah to ensure that Judah gets their inherited land. And that's where we pick up in this great chapter. Verse 6, I'm reading from New Living Translation for you this morning. A delegation from the tribe of Judah, led by Caleb, the son of Jehunah, 
the Kenizzite, came to Joshua at Gilgal. Caleb said to Joshua, Remember what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, about you and me when we were in Kadesh Barnea? I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me to Kadesh Barnea to explore the land of Canaan. I returned and gave an honest report. But my brothers who went with me frightened the people from entering the promised land. And for my part, I wholeheartedly followed the Lord my God. And so that day, Moses solemnly promised me, the land of Canaan, which you have just walked on, will be your grant of land that you and your descendants will have forever because you wholeheartedly followed me, the Lord my God. Now, as you can see, the Lord has kept me alive and well and has promised for all these 45 years since Moses made the promise, even while Israel wandered in the wilderness. Today, I am 85 years old. I'm as strong now as I was when Moses sent me on that journey, and I can still travel and fight as well as I could then. So, give me the hill country that the Lord promised me. You will remember that as scouts, we found the descendants of Anak living in great walled towns. But if the Lord is with me, I will drive them out of the land just as the Lord said. So Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave Hebron to him as his portion of land. Hebron still belongs to the descendants of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, because he wholeheartedly followed the Lord God, the God of Israel. Previously, Hebron had been called Kiriath Arba, it had been named after Arba, the great hero of the descendants of Anak. And the land had rest from war. Great passage. But let's take it to the next chapter and read two more verses. Chapter 15, verses 16 and 17. Caleb has now won the hill country from the Anakim, the giants. But there's one city left to be taken. And so we find in chapter 15, verse 16, Caleb said, I will give my daughter, Aksa, in marriage to the one who attacks and captures Kiriath-sephir. Othniel, the son of Caleb's brother, Kenaz, was the one who conquered it. So Aksa became Othniel's wife. From these verses, I think there are three core essentials of what an attitude of faith looks like that we see in Caleb that I want us to glean from God's word today. First of all, it is a choice we make. That an attitude of faith is a choice that we make regardless of our circumstances. Second, it is a commitment that we maintain regardless of how much time passes. Third, it is a culture that we model. It is something we intentionally pass on to the generations that follow us. And that attitude of faith is far more important than all of our life's accomplishments. So first of all, it's a choice that we make. That an attitude of faith is a choice that we make to overcome regardless of what people may say, regardless of what we think people might think, Regardless of the circumstances we are facing, it is a choice that we deliberately, consciously, volitionally make. In other words, an attitude of faith is not an emotion. Sometimes we're waiting to feel faith. Faith is not something you feel. Faith is something you choose. It's not an experience. Faith is something that is separate from our experience. It is something we deliberately and consciously and volitionally choose. Now, in my mind, as I look at the life of Caleb, he is one of those guys that could have easily been tempted to write a big fat L on his forehead for loser. And you're going, why, why do you say that? Well, the deck was stacked against him 
from the very beginning. You see, I don't know what his parents were thinking. But when they collared and leashed him with the name Caleb, they were literally calling him dog. That's what the word Caleb means. It means dog. So how would you like to be tagged with that name all your life? In other words, listen, your parents constantly when they talk to you, all you hear is eat dog, sit dog, go to bed dog, go outside dog, be quiet dog. Every time your mom and dad spoke to you, you weren't sure if they were talking to you or if talking to the family pet. Now, in all fairness, I don't think that his parents called him dog because they were speaking so much of the animal, but rather they were thinking of the honorable attributes that the name signifies. Attributes of loyalty, faithfulness, boldness, strength. And all those attributes literally personify the life of Caleb throughout the pages of Scripture. He was a bold and faithful and loyal man of God. Three times in this passage, verse 8, verse 9, verse 14, it says, He followed the Lord God with his whole heart. He lived up to the very attributes that his name was given him. In fact, God even speaks of him the same way in Numbers chapter 24, verse 14. God calls Caleb my servant who has remained loyal to me. Wouldn't that be a great epitaph on your grave? He followed the Lord wholeheartedly. She followed the Lord wholeheartedly. That was Caleb. His name was not derogative, but rather a great honorable name. Well, it seems that he had one strike against him. The name meant dog, but that's not what they had in mind. But there was a second strike that seemed to be against him as well. It appears, as you read through scriptures, that in fact Caleb was not a genuine Israelite. You say, wait. He represented the tribe of Judah. Of course he had to be an Israelite. He was inheriting land. He had to be an Israelite. Not so. When you look in Scripture and you look at verse 6, it says he was the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. The Kenizzites were the descendants, the sons of Esau from the hated, tri or the hated people of the Edomites, the long-standing bitter enemies of Israel. In fact, throughout their entire history, the Edomites were constantly clashing with Israel, doing border skirmishes and wars. And it appears that Caleb came from this group of people, the Edomites. In other words, he was outside of the covenant people of God. He was not a Jew. So he was a foreigner and he was a dog. Two strikes against him. You begin to see something about Caleb's life about his faith. Now, according to 1 Chronicles, sometime in his family's history, he was adopted into the tribe of Judah. Now, some believe that his mother was a Jewess from the tribe of Judah, and his father was a Kenizzite, and therefore the Kenizzites were then brought into the tribe of Judah via his mother. Others believe that Caleb became a Jew just like Abraham did, by faith, by faith. No one knows really for sure, but somehow he was absorbed into the very tribe of Judah. Now, what I find fascinating is that his actual heritage may not have been one that he was proud of, but here's what's important for us to mark in this text, is that God made him a member of the tribe of Judah. He became a member of the very tribe which great kings and leaders came from. In fact, if you go all the way back to Numbers chapter 13, when the 12 spies were being chosen to go into the land of Canaan to explore it for 40 days, you'll find that Caleb was one of the leaders. The word there is Nasai, which is typically translated prince or captain or leader, mostly prince. He was one of the princes that represented one of the tribes to go into the land of Canaan to explore it. In other words, God was saying, irrespective of where Caleb may have come from or what his name may have meant, Caleb is a prince of Judah. And I designate that accordingly because of his faith. God made him a prince of Judah. Though he may have been branded by the world as a dog of Edom, God made him the Caleb, the prince of Judah. 
I love these words in Psalm 113 where David says this, Who can be compared with the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high? Listen to this. He stoops down on heaven and on earth to look. He lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. And then he says this, He sets them among princes, even the princes of his own people. You see, Caleb was far from alone if he was a Gentile and he was absorbed in the tribe of Judah. He was not the only one that ever happened to. When we look through scripture, we find out that there are others who came from a Gentile heritage that got brought into the very nation of Judah and even more so, they became part of the promised lineage of the Messiah to come. Names like Rahab, the Amorite that we're familiar with. Or names like uh, Ruth the Moabitess, or Tamar the Canaanite, or Bathsheba who was married to Uriah the Hittite. All of these nations, the Amorites, the Moabites, the Canaanites, were a hated people that God absorbed into the tribe, uh, into the nation of Israel and into the tribe of Judah, and they became a part of the ancestry of Jesus himself. Let me say it this way. When you look at Jesus' ancestry and you look at the bloodline that he came from, we serve and love a mixed racially, uh, a racially mixed Savior. He represented these different bloodlines from the hated nations around Israel that God intentionally brought in. Why? Because he's saying, I understand you. I represent you. I identify with all mankind. And so Christ is our racially mixed Savior. Caleb was brought in to this incredible privileged line of people. Joshua 14 says that Caleb was, came to Gilgal in order to ensure that Judah would get their rightful inheritance. But more than that, he came to Gilgal because he wanted to make sure that he would get the promised land that 45 years earlier God said, listen, Caleb, because of your faithfulness, I'm going to give you the very land that you've set your heart on, Hebron. So in verses 6 through 12, Caleb condenses an old and painful story, a familiar story to all of us, a story of the 12 spies of Israel. And so he tells Joshua, reminding Joshua something he doesn't need to be reminded of, but he does. But it's in these words that we see an attitude of faith that is first a choice. Caleb reminds Joshua, remember Joshua? I serve the Lord with my whole heart. Do you remember what Moses said of me, Joshua? Moses said he served God with his whole heart. Three times in this passage, Caleb serves God with his whole heart. Listen carefully. What this means is this, is that Caleb is saying long ago, I made a choice to fully yield myself to the Lord my God, to fully surrender my life to Him. I made a choice to believe and to follow Him 110%. Listen, I don't think there's a greater choice that we could ever make in our lives. More than the person we marry, more than the job we choose, more than where we choose to live, anything. The greatest choice you'll ever make in your life is to say, Lord God, my life is fully and wholly yours. You'll never regret it. Well, you probably know this story. 45 years earlier, Numbers chapter 13, Israel is fresh out of slavery. Uh, they are um, eyewitnesses of stunning miracle after miracle after miracle. The plagues. And yet God preserves and saves and protects the nation of Israel. He brings them through the Red Sea, dividing it on each side, passing through on dry ground. Yet when Egypt comes through, he destroys the army. God gives them the Ten Commandments, a miraculous and supernatural event at Mount Sinai. And God is doing all of this because he's preparing the people to take the promised land. Now, it appears, as we read Scripture, that we're mistaken. Israel didn't come from Egypt at all. They came from a place called Missouri. They came from the Shomi state. Because when it came time to take the land, the people of Israel said, ah, 
we don't, we're not sure we really believe it's the land flowing in milk and honey. We've got to see it to believe it. And so God in his mercy says, okay, fine. I want you to choose 12 leaders, 12 captains, 12 princes, each one representing one of the tribes of Israel, and send them in as spies into the promised land for 40 days, and they'll come back and they'll show you, they'll tell you what the promised land really looks like. You see, the people of Israel had to see it before they would believe it. So the 12 go into the land for 40 days. They wander around. They inspect it, and they come back. And two of those who come back say, you know what? We can do this thing. We've got this because God is with us. But 10 of them, 10 of them come back, and their knees are knocking so loudly as they come back with fear that they can be heard a mile away as they come back to the nation of Israel. In fact, in verse 8, it says that they caused the people's heart to literally melt with fear when they give the report back. In other words, they say this, you know what, we can't do this. What are we thinking? This is stupid. This land is overflowing with terrible giants. We can't take this land. This is impossible. What were we thinking? And so then began to ensue this, this discussion that was, became heated more and more. And as they began to talk about it, Caleb said, listen, listen, we can do this. And he tried to assure the people, listen, God is with us. He's brought us this far. Didn't he do all those miracles back there? Didn't he promise us that he's going to give us the land? Can't he do miracles again? The people have nothing to do with it. It is interesting to me how fear will oftentimes exaggerate things. They said this land is filled. It's overflowing with giants. But in reality, they're only in one place, in Hebron. That's where they're at. And yet fear has a way of exaggerating reality and stealing our faith and turning it into panic. And so the people began to panic. And they begin to argue with Caleb and Joshua and Moses and Aaron. They say, why did you bring us out here? So we could die by our enemies and put our children at enormous risk? What were you doing? And the more Caleb tried to speak up, eventually the people began to pick up stones off the ground. They were going to stone them. We've heard enough of you guys. We're going back to Egypt and we're leaving you here dead. At that point, God says, I've heard enough of your defiant unbelief. I've had enough. He says, you want to stay in the wilderness? You want to go back? Then you'll stay in the wilderness and you'll die. Everybody over the age of 20 is going to now die in the wilderness. They'll never see the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. You're the only ones. So over the next 40 years or so, more than a million plus people die. When you do the math on that, do you realize how significant that is? That means that Joshua and Caleb would have witnessed more than 73 funerals every day for the next 40 years. See, here's the point. Whenever we look at the Bible, we're always reminded that God-sized promises always intimidate us because they're always going to be bigger than we can pull off. You see, God's not going to call you to do something you can do in your own strength. He will always call you to do things that are bigger and greater than you can do in your own strength. Why? Because he wants you to rely on him. Let me ask you this. Can you get to heaven on your own? No, not at all. You can't even walk across the street on your own unless God gave you the strength and the breath of your lungs to do that. Everything you have comes from God. And so God will call you to a vision, to a purpose, to a plan in your life that will intimidate you when you begin to hear it. This past week I was reflecting on Exodus chapter 3. Moses was 80 years of age, a shepherd, wandering in the desert, taking care of a flock that wasn't even his own. He was 80 years old, didn't he have his own sheep? Taking care of Jethro's sheep, his father-in-law. And he meets God. And God says, Moses... I want you to go and deliver my people. And four times Moses says, no, 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 you got the wrong guy. No, 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 you got the wrong guy. That's way too big for me to handle. I can never do that. 
And the point simply is this, that whenever God calls you to do something, it will always be bigger than you can possibly pull off. Why? Because that's why God is God, and that's why you are you. And he wants you to trust him. But the people of Israel failed to trust God. They failed to believe that he could fulfill the promise that he said he would fulfill. So what Caleb is doing in this passage is this. He's showing us that faith, first of all, is a deliberate choice. It's a choice to stand alone with God, even if it means standing against the world. It is a choice to wholeheartedly follow God, regardless of the circumstances. Circumstances may be stacked against you. Listen carefully to what I'm saying here. Because as you try to live out your walk with Christ, your personal relationship with Him, it may seem that circumstances, that people are against you every step of the way. But faith is a deliberate, a conscious, volitional choice that says, I'm going to trust God irrespective of my circumstances or what others may say or do. It is first a choice. For Caleb, it seems his heritage was against him, but by choice of faith, God remedied that. It seems his name was against him, but by choice of faith, God brought honor to him. And it seems that even his ancestry was against him, but by choice of faith, God enabled him to stand strong in the family of Judah. You see, if you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this this morning. Your attitude of faith in God is a choice, regardless of the obstacles you face, whether it's your past, whether it's other people, or whether it's your pedigree. It doesn't matter. 1 John 5, 4 says this, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, our faith. The faith that you have in God right now is a choice that you must choose to make. And the level of trust that you give to God right now in that faith is a choice that only you can make. And so were Caleb to stand here today, he would say, I want you to trust God, not with half your heart, not with most of your heart, but with your whole heart. Make that choice to trust him. Second, it is a commitment we maintain. Now, if you read the Bible very long, you're going to find out fairly quickly that it's not unusual that God has people wait, doesn't he? How long did Abraham wait before he had the promised son? 25 years. Can you imagine that? God says, Abraham, you're 75 years old. You're getting up there. But I'm going to give you a son. Whew, good thing, God, because I'm getting up there. And so he waits, and he's 76, still no son. He says, God, where's that son? I'm not 75 anymore. I'm 76. And so the years creep by. And Abraham says, God, where are you at? 25 years go by. He's 100 years old. And God says, oh, by the way, I haven't forgotten. Now's the time. And by this time, Abraham's already made plans of his own, hasn't he? But he had Abraham wait. He had Moses wait. For 40 years. When Moses was 40 years old, he was strapping strong. He was a leader. He was in control of his destiny. He knew what he was doing. His plan was very simple. He was going to kill the Egyptians one at a time. But God foiled that plan, sent him into the desert. He became a shepherd for 40 years of a flock he didn't even own. Humbled him. Broke him. And then when he was 80 years old, after 40 long years, God says, okay, now it's time. I wonder how many of you this morning are sitting here thinking, you know what? Whatever plans you have for me, God, that you thought you had at one time, too old now, it's done. It's past. Opportunity has now escaped. And God says, not with me. Now's the time. I've been waiting for you to get over you so that you can serve me with your whole heart. And so Caleb waits for 45 long years. That's a long time. 
You see, he not only makes a choice to have a good attitude, but more than that, he maintains a good attitude for 45 long years. Now listen, when we make a choice to have a good attitude, we can do that, can't we? We can do that for about two minutes. Sometimes we can pull it off and have a good attitude for two days. But much beyond that, we begin to lose it, don't we? It becomes a difficulty, a challenge. It's like trying to stay calm when you're being attacked by a thousand mosquitoes. You just can't keep it. You can't maintain it. But what really impresses me about Caleb is not simply that he maintains a good attitude for 45 years. Listen to this. There is not one shred, not one hint, as you read through the Old Testament, you look at the character of Caleb, not one time do you see him going, oh, woe is me. Self-pity, bitterness, resentment, you don't see it in him at all. He does not blame others for the situation he's in, although it's no fault of his own. He could have had Hebron 45 years earlier. But where do you hear him saying, these dirty, rotten, never. What you see him doing is maintaining a good attitude. Now I want you to know this is speaking to me as much as it is to you because I was convicted by this before you were. <laughs> one noted counselor said that he considers only one kind of counselee hopeless. The person who blames others for his or her problems. If you can own the mess you're in, he says, there is hope for you available and help. As long as you blame others, you will be a victim for the rest of your life. I hope you hear that this morning. Because, you see, we live in a nation of victimized people. We live in a nation where being the victim is popular today. And as long as you choose to remain the victim of your past, of what people have said to you, what they've done to you, as long as you remain in that place of self-pity, you'll never be able to get the hope or the help you need to change. Because you see, when we're the victim, listen to this, when we're the victim and say, woe is me, it's all their fault, woe is me, it's all their fault, what you're doing is giving the power to change to somebody else. And you're depending on them to change you, them to come back to you and say, oh, I'm so sorry, I was so wrong, I was so messed up. How can I help you get back on your feet? Listen, that may never happen in your life. There may be people that are absolute jerks to you and they'll stay that way until the day they die. And if you're waiting for them to change, come back to you and say, oh, I'm so sorry, and somehow that's going to give you the leverage to turn around and say, oh, now I'm free, I'm relieved, now I can get better. You're hoping in the wrong way. That may never change. It's not up to them. It's up to you. As long as you blame others, you'll be a victim for the rest of your life. Now, don't you think, honestly, that Caleb had those moments? Don't you think? Let's just be real. Don't you think he had those moments where he was like, he grumbled and struggled? I wonder if he thought, you know, my life didn't turn out at all the way I, I thought it was supposed to. When I was 40 years old, man, I was like Moses. We were going to take the promised land. Things were great. The horizon looked fantastic. Life was good. And then somebody, somebody had to come and mess it all up. Any of you identify with that? I had my life all figured out. I knew exactly what was going to happen. I was so excited about it. And then somebody messed it up. Never once do you see that in Caleb. He maintained an attitude of trust, of commitment, an attitude of enthusiasm for 45 years. So how do he do that? I think we have to look between the lines of Scripture. Here it is. He refused to wallow in the pigsty of self-pity. He refused to feel sorry for himself and stay there. His focus instead was on the very promises of God, that God said, I'm going to give you, Caleb, that promised real estate that you set your foot on, you examined, you looked at, and your heart is set on. That's what I'm going to give you. And he maintained his trust and his hope in God's promise that God would fulfill what he said. He reminds Joshua of those very things. Listen again what he says. Now, as you can see, he says to Joshua, 
The Lord has kept me alive and well, as he promised for all these 45 years. Then he makes a statement that I think is really cool. He says, I'm just as strong as I was then, and I can fight just as well as I could then. He recognized that God had sustained him just as God said he would. Today I'm 85 years old, he said, so give me the hill country that the Lord promised me. Hebron was the promised, prized real estate. It was the best of the best. Now, those of you who are in realty, you're probably familiar with, but oftentimes realtors will say that what makes a piece of realty uh, um, uh, lucrative is location, location, location. It turns out that Hebron was location, location, location. It was a place of beauty. It was a place of value, but it was also a place of rich heritage. Hebron was the very place that Abraham had come and set up an altar to worship the Lord and had lived there. But beyond that, Hebron was the very place where Abraham, the very patriarch of the Jews, was buried. Isaac and Jacob, this was a place of tremendous heritage, tremendous value, but also a place of tremendous beauty. There was just one small, I should say large problem. This is where the sons of Anak lived, the giants, the Anakim. And they had lived there for hundreds of years. They were the descendants of the Nephilim who had existed during the times of the flood. And they were called by a number of different names by the people, or the different um, uh, people living in Canaan. The Moabites called them the Mim, which means terrors or terrible, horrible ones. Others called them the Rephaim. That is shades or ghostly ones, shadowy ones, mysterious ones. Some call them the Zumamines, those who speak gibberish because their language no one could understand. And they're described throughout Scripture as being fearsome and terrible giants. One of them we find in Numbers chapter 3, verse 11. His name is Og. He's the king. His bed, it says, was made of iron. It was six feet wide and more than 12 feet long. There were giants in the land those days. They really existed. In the London Museum, there's a femur of one of these giants. Based on just the size of this femur, this giant was expected, it was thought to be about nine feet tall. Nine feet. Wow. Wow. And a whole civilization has been uncovered in the area of Canaan of buildings that were built for giants. There were giants in the land those days. As a matter of fact, the name Anakim became proverbial for enemies that it was impossible to conquer. Who can stand before the Anakim, the saying went. So for 40 plus years, Caleb had this battle in front of him. But more importantly, for 40-plus years, he committed to maintaining a right attitude. He consciously made a choice not to be bitter, to blame others. Even though I'm sure there were times he was tempted to give in to self-pity, resentment. I could be enjoying that land right now. I really could. But no, somebody's got to mess it up. I love these words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was also an English uh, heart surgeon, well-known Bible expositor, but he said this, most unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself. I think he's right. What are those voices that you're listening to? It's easy to find people who will drag you down the road of self-pity because, you see, misery always loves company. But Caleb didn't listen to other voices. He didn't listen to anybody else, but he spoke to himself. He spoke to himself. He reminded himself of God's promises. Do you know how he did that? I don't think it's too difficult to imagine. Imagine what it must have been like for Caleb spending time in the desert 
as he was spending time with this younger generation. They had to break down camp, set up camp. They had to gather manna on a daily basis. And while they were working, either breaking down camp, setting up camp, gathering manna, as they were going along, I think he told the younger generation, do you know what I saw over there in the promised land? That was a place of incredible beauty, and God's promised it to us. And we're going to take that land. You're going to be with me. I think at night, when the desert grows cold, and the sky is dark, and it sparkles with the stars, and they sat around the fire trying to stay warm, I think Caleb recounted the stories of the splendor and the wonder and the beauty and the value of a land flowing with milk and honey that God promised them. In other words, he planted seeds of expectation. He worked on remembering them daily and consciously chose to resist feeling sorry for himself. Some of you need to hear that. So what does an attitude of faith look like? It is a choice that you make. Nobody can make it for you. It is a belief that you must maintain. Nobody can maintain it for you, but you must maintain it yourself. And third, it is a culture that we model. We switch over to chapter 15. In verse 14, it says that Caleb was successful in driving out the sons of Anakim, three tribes living in the land. But there is still one more city to be taken in the region, the city of Debur which is also known as Kiriath Sefer. And so in verses 16 and 17, it says, Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the one who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, the son of Caleb's brother, Kenaz, was the one who conquered it. And so Aksa became Othniel's wife. Little known fact, but Othniel is not only the nephew of, of Caleb, but he was also the very first judge of the nation of Israel when Joshua died a very successful and strong and good judge. He delivered the nation of Israel after eight years of bondage to a foreign king. He was a good guy. But where did he get this kind of faith to take Kiriath Sefer, by the way, which means the city of books? It was literally a repository for the sacred books of the giants. But where did he get this kind of faith? I think he saw it modeled. He saw it modeled in Caleb. The city itself is an actual place. In fact, it's been dug by archaeologists over the number of years many times, extensively dug. And archaeologists have found a couple of things that were very important. One, they found that this city, when you dig down, that just at the time as Israel invaded uh, Canaan, at those very rune level is where you find the broken city of the Anakim. But above that, you find the city of Israel, just as you would expect. But they also found something else that was fascinating. That the people of Kiriath Sefer had built a very unusual sort of defense. Now, it's not unusual to find uh, ancient cities that have two walls, but this one in particular had two separate walls. Uh, and in between the walls were a maze of blind alleys. The first wall was relatively easy to bre breach, but the second wall was much, much stronger. So what would happen is if you were to attack Kiriath Sefer, you may be able to get past the first wall. But once you did, you found yourself lost in a maze of blind alleys, and then you were a sitting duck. It's the only city in all of Canaan that had this kind of line of defense. But this is what Othniel was up against, and he took the city. So where does that faith come from? I think it was modeled for him from Caleb. Othniel had the privilege of growing up in a home where an attitude of faith was intentionally cultivated and it set him up for life. I love the words of inventor, creative genius Thomas Edison. He said this, if the only thing we leave our kids is this quality of enthusiasm, we will have given them an estate of incalculable value. I like that. So, mom and dad, grandma, grandpa, what kind of faith are you modeling for your children? Are you preparing the next generation to carry the baton of a wholehearted trust in God?
Are you intentionally passing that on to those around you? In a small example of this, Pastor Ray Steadman, who's now with the Lord, wrote these words years ago. He said, do you fathers ever teach your children how to get up in the morning? Not only get up, but how to get up. There's a threefold technique in getting up, he said. First is you stretch. That gets the body going. Then you smile. That puts the soul in the right attitude so that we don't start the day grumbling. And then say, God loves me. Because that sets the spirit right. You're reminding yourself that your identity of who you are. You're God's child. So, in body, soul, and spirit, you're starting the day right. Stretch, smile, and say, God loves me. What a great example in a small way of what it means to cultivate an attitude of faith in our children around us. So let me ask you, what is your attitude of faith going to be in 2024? Less than 24 hours from now. Fear? Discouragement? Fatigue? Frustration? I think we're Caleb to step out of the pages of Scripture, out of time itself, and to stand before us. I think he would say, the wisest, the greatest, most important thing you could ever do is wholeheartedly follow the Lord your God. You won't regret it. How do we do that? I would suggest that we follow in his very footsteps. Caleb's attitude was one first, a choice that he made. It wasn't a feeling. It wasn't an emotion. It wasn't an experience. It was a volitional, conscientious, deliberate choice. And the same is true for you. If you're waiting for circumstances to be just right, if you're waiting for the feelings to line up, if you're waiting for other people to agree, you're wasting your time. Faith is a choice that you must make despite your circumstances, despite your feelings, despite what other people may say or do. First, they made a choice, and we need to do the same. Nobody can make that for you. Caleb would say, your attitude of faith in God is a choice, regardless of the obstacles you face, whether it's your past or people or your pedigree. Second, he would say your attitude of faith is a commitment that you must maintain, even if you have to wait 45 years. Third, he would say this, your attitude of faith is a culture that you need to model for others. Intentionally cultivate an attitude of faith by modeling it for your children, your spouse, your friends, those around you. I think that's the best advice we could get, don't you?